Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Hey, would you give Jesus the great big shout? I mean, the biggest hallelujah you got right now. He is worthy, isn't he? Yes, he is. The resurrected Son of God, the Lamb of God, the great I Am, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. He's the one that was dead, but he's alive forevermore, and he holds the keys of hell and death. And he's here to set you free. It is so great to see you all. Hey, we have a whole bunch of people that drove a whole bunch of miles to get here tonight with us. I say we give them all a big hand right now. We're so glad. So many people from so many different places have come to Lee Summit to gather with us. And I tell people, listen, you're not our guests, even if you've never been here before. You're our family. And this is what's exciting. It's a new thing God is doing. If you've never been to Lee Summit in your life, first time ever in this building, no, you're not a guest of Abundant Life. You are our family, and this is a family reunion weekend, and that's why we do it. So let's give it up right now for all of them in a really big way. People from Iowa, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, Mexico, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, Texas, we're thankful you're here, our online campus. Now, if you are a member of our online campus, online congregation, and you're here maybe for the first time this weekend, we have something special for you. We'd like to meet you after this service if you will exit to your right. This door right here, go through that door. You'll see a room right there. We have a special reception for you. We'd love to meet you and uh, introduce some of our staff to you. We have a gift that we would love to share with you for being a part of this special weekend. One of the things I'm most excited about what God is doing right now in our church is the online campus. In reality, you guys, is online is on site. If you're gathering in a living room to worship in community, living missionally, you're on site. Don't tell the people up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, worship me in the barn, that they don't count. <laughs> don't tell the folks over in Mexico, Missouri, in a little banquet hall, they don't count. No, they do. Don't, don't, don't tell the folks up in Wisconsin worshiping in a living room of four or five other families that that's just kind of second best. No, it counts, and God is doing something new, and I'm thankful for what God is doing through you and in you, pioneering something new that really God is doing for the first time really in American church history, and I'm convinced in the years ahead more and more people are going to be worshiping in exactly that same manner. I'm so thankful that you've come tonight for a weekend of a family reunion. Uh, we all need freedom. I don't know what you're going through tonight or how you walked in, but every single person here tonight is wearing a set of these. We choose our chains in life. Church, I'm telling you, every single one of us are wearing a set of chains. No, they're invisible chains, but that doesn't mean they're not real chains. They're real chains. And every single person here walked in tonight wearing a set of chains. You will either leave tonight wearing the chains of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you'll leave tonight wearing the same chains you walked in, the chains of sin. And I'm trying to tell you that when you exchange your chains of sin and put on the chains that belong to him, he sets you free. And you were made to be free. But when you choose to live in the chains of sin, it's not freedom, it's not liberty, it is captivity, it is a life of slavery. And every single day, Jesus comes to set the captive free, and then Satan comes to take the free back into captivity. And that's what I want to talk about tonight from the Word of God, the book of Judges, chapter 13. The book of Judges, chapter 13. Revival looks differently when you study it throughout history, but there's always a few common denominators when God moves in true revival, heaven-sent, Holy Spirit, revival. There's always a common denominator. It's indescribable, but it's undeniable. And God shows up and sets people free in ways that are unique, indescribable, but undeniable. 
And that's what we've been praying for. For 40 days, we've been praying in this kind of way. And I want you to see what God wants to do in your life and my life. Like so many Christians, Samson was born for victory, but he was led into captivity. And tonight we're going to study the life of a man by the known as Samson. There are four chapters in the book of Judges given to this one man, Samson. I mean, there are four chapters of God's word given to one man by the name of Samson. There must be something about Samson's life that God wants us to learn. See, this is more than history. This is in some way our story. God gives us the life of Samson so that we can see our life in him. And I want you to know that the church is not a place of shame. It is not a place of condemnation. I'm telling you that tonight because for far too long the church was a place of hiding but it was not a place of healing and tonight I want you to know wherever you find yourself in life you can come out of hiding so God can begin the healing And for far too long, churches like ours hid behind our theology, and it's easy to hide behind our Bible study, but the mark of revival is authenticity, is transparency, and I want you to know we all go through the same stuff because we're all made of the same stuff. And there's not one among us that hasn't at one time been in the bondage of sin, in sin's prison. And that, you see, is the life of Samson. He was born to live in victory, but he was led subtly and slowly into captivity. And sadly, tragically, that is the life of many Christians, many within the body of Christ. You understand that the Bible describes what ought to be the normal Christian life with these kind of adjectives. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He said, you shall know the Son, and the Son shall set you free. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Jesus said, I've come to give you life abundantly. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, he always calls us to live triumphantly. Do you understand your true identity as a child of God, bought and ransomed by the blood of Calvary, is life abundantly, a life of victory, a life lived triumphantly, a life that can live to freedom and liberty. But sadly and tragically, many Christians live in complete mediocrity at best and sometimes complete slavery and captivity. And that was the life of Samson. Samson is the man we're going to study because he is a picture of so many Christians. Tonight, if you're living in captivity, you can leave here in complete victory. Jesus has the power to set every person free. Jesus has the power to break every single chain. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. Three days later, he rose again so that he can break every single prison. He can break every single addiction. He can free you from that negative emotion. He has the power to set you free. He is the one that we need. And all I'm going to ask you to do is let the Spirit of God move in you. Would you do that? Listen, here's the reality. I'm convinced God would bring revival in our land if he could get our attention for more than 10 minutes. I'm really serious. You know, one of the things that frustrates me on a Sunday morning, you know, three services back to back, God, we want you to move. We really, really do. But you got an hour and 10 minutes. That's it. If you're not going to move an hour and 10 minutes, sorry. We've got to wait for the next Sunday. Now, that's just the nature of, you know, multiple services, and that is what it is. That's why we need a weekend like this. And I just have to be honest with you. I'm not going to rush. I'm not going to be in a hurry. Now, if you want to leave, you can. I'm not going to be offended. But you made an effort to get here. Some of you drove hundreds of miles to get here. I'm assuming you're here because you want to see a move of God. You don't just want Sunday morning religion. You want to see a move of God, true redemption. And that's what God is going to do if you'll let him. I don't care how strong the chain or the power of your sin. Jesus has the power to set you free. He said, the spirit of the Lord God has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And tonight, those that are in the prison are about to get unbound. 
Jesus is going to move indescribably, undeniably. Now, you need to understand who Samson was. Some of you may not know who Samson is. Samson had a great power on his life because he had a very special conception. When you see his biography, four chapters in the book of Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, the story opens up in chapter 13. You have a man by the name of Manoah, and he has no son. He has no children because his wife is barren. They've lived a long, long time. They've tried to have children. They have no children because her womb is barren. But in chapter 13, the angel of the Lord shows up and tells Manoah and his wife, you're going to have a son. And the son is going to be very special from his mother's womb. He's going to be special because it's going to be a special conception, a miraculous conception. He's going to be a Nazarite from his mother's womb. You see, it was God, not Manoah, that made this woman conceive. It was a miracle that they could have a baby. When Samson is finally born, he is a miracle baby. And do you understand his conception is a picture of you and I as Christians. Samson's birth is a picture of our spiritual birth when we are born again. You understand, you did not give yourself spiritual life. You could not save yourself. You see, you were born physically. But Jesus said, you must be born again spiritually. Twice he said in John 3, marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. We come into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But when you put your faith in him and you receive the Son of God, you also then receive the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God gives life to your spirit and your spirit is born. You see, you are born of a special conception. You are born of a special seed. You're born, 1 Peter 1, 23, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That is the Genesis 3, 15 seed. I'm talking about the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a very special conception, a miraculous conception, the day you are born again, when you put your faith in him. Now, because he had a very special conception, he was called to a very, very specific consecration. Samson had a special consecration and calling on his life. His name actually means little son. Now, I want you to see the picture that is emerging. He is very much a picture of you and I as Christians. His name means little son. You see, his purpose in life, called by God, was to shine like the sun in a world of darkness, in a world of wickedness. He was a Nazarite. Now, a lot of you may not know what a Nazarite is, but a Nazarite was one who took a very special vow. Nazarite simply means separated. He was be separated from the world and separated unto God. He had a very special devotion. He was to be wholly, completely devoted to the lordship of Almighty God in his life. And Numbers chapter 6 gives us the Nazarite vow. There were three vows that a Nazarite was to take. Number one is this. He was to drink no wine. He was never partake for any reason of the fruit of the vine. Number two, he was not to touch any dead thing for any reason. Never, ever, ever touch no dead thing. And number three was this, he was never, ever to cut his hair, ever. That was the Nazarite vow. What was God saying? Listen, you are completely mine. I want you to be wholly devoted to me as a Nazarite, separated completely and wholly from this world. I want you to have no worldly stimulation. I don't want you to have any worldly reputation. Do you understand? That is a picture of you and I as Christians because we have a special conception. We have been born of God. We are now his children, members of his kingdom. We are also called to a special consecration. We're to have no worldly stimulation, no worldly reputation. Jesus said these words through the pen of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He said these words, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. He said, come out from among them, the world, and be you separate. Touch not the unclean thing. 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but of the world. Romans 12 and verse 2, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is something God is saying, we are not to be conformed to the world. 
We're not to be conformed to the culture around us, but we're to be conformed solely to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Samson, who was a little son, he was to reflect the light of the sun in some capacity to shine like the sun, S-U-N. We too are to shine like the sun, S-O-N. That's why God's conforming us to his image, the image of the sun, so that we can shine like the sun into the darkness of our world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. The city sun on a hill cannot be hid. Even so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen generation. He said you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that we might shine forth the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, as Christians, we've had a special conception and we're called to a special consecration. I'm talking about separation. And guys, I'm telling you, this is the crown jewel of the church. This is the, this is the missing jewel of modern Christianity, the pursuit of a life that is holy. It's 1 Peter 1:16. Be you holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. And we're going to see Samson was called to a life of holy. But in the city chose to pursue what would make him happy. And in the end, he was neither holy nor happy. He would end up in a life of captivity and slavery. You see, as a Nazarite, God gave him power. He had supernatural strength. And he was to use that supernatural strength, not natural strength, but God gave him supernatural strength to lead his people from bondage under the Philistines to victory and freedom and liberty. As the book opens up in his biography, the children of Israel have sinned and they lived in rebellion against God. So God allowed them to go into captivity and bondage and subjugation at the time of the Philistines. And the Philistines were a very evil, wicked, pagan people that were making conquest of this land, Canaan land, at the same time as the ancient Hebrews. And God raised up Samson to deliver his people, to deliver them from bondage, to bring about freedom, and deliver them from Philistine tyranny and Philistine captivity. But I want you to see, just like you and me, he had the power and potential to live in victory and freedom and liberty, but he was lured slowly into Philistine captivity and Philistine slavery. See, just like Samson was to shine like the sun for the glory of God, we are to shine for God as we reflect the light of his sun. But listen very carefully, the greatest barrier to experiencing God's power is sin. The greatest barrier to experiencing God's power in your life is sin. Do you understand that Adam was created with power and dominion as a child of God, that he bore the image of God? But Satan knew if he could get him to sin, he would relinquish that dominion, and that dominion would transfer back to Satan. And do you understand, as a child of God, having been born again by faith in the Son of God, you receive life now by the Spirit of God, you got back everything Adam lost in the garden. You got back the image of God. You got back the title, child of God. You're now a member of the kingdom of God, and you now have dominion as a child of God, power and authority, but unless you're pursuing a life that is holy, you can't live in that authority. God has given you spiritually, listen carefully, church, the abundant life is an obedient life. You can't live abundantly if you're not going to pursue a life lived obediently. You will end up in mediocrity if not complete captivity. This is the life of Samson. Samson's story teaches us there is a high cost for low living. He is a strong man that gave in to a stronghold. Let's pick a story up right here. Judges chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? 
And Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. And that last line would become the line and the mantra of his life. Get her for me, for she pleases me well. You see, Samson was living a life that was all about him. It was all about me, whatever it takes to make me happy. And I want you to see six steps in Samson's life over the course of 20 years that would lead to a pathway of destruction, a pathway of pain, a pathway of ruin. Number one is this, it starts when we live on the border, just living on the border. Now understand, Timna was a border town. Timna was a border town that bordered the Philistine land from the Hebrew land, it was a border town. And it wasn't that Samson had no reason to go down to Timna. In fact, if you read the whole text in verse 4, it tells us he went down there to spy them out as an enemy. He initially goes for the right reason. He knows he has a mission. God has sent him on a mission. He is a military leader, and he's about to lead an insurrection against the Philistines to throw off Philistine domination so that his people can be free. This was the land God led them to, the land that flowed with milk and honey, prospered Prosperity and plenty, the Hebrews were meant to live freely with a time of prosperity and plenty, not in captivity, and God had raised Samson up to lead them in victory against the Philistines. He goes down, according to verse 4, for the right reasons. He's spying out the land. He's doing a little intelligence gathering. This is a recon mission. But while he's in town, he gets a distraction. All of a sudden, there's this woman, a Philistine woman. And all of a sudden, this woman becomes a distraction from his real reason and his real mission. Listen carefully. If Satan can't destroy you, he will be satisfied to simply distract you. Because in your distraction, he is working about your slow destruction. And it began right here in this border town of Timnus. You see, he goes down for the right reasons. He's living on mission. And all of a sudden, there's this distraction. He goes back home. He's no longer thinking about God's mission. All he can think now is about his infatuation. And the problem is not that he went to this border town. The problem is he kept going back to that border town over and over and over again. I'm trying to tell you, if you want to live free and stay free, you have to stop living on the border and playing on the French. You see, there's something within us all. We like to get as close to the sin as we can without stepping over the line. You ever heard somebody say this before? Hey, is it a sin to such and such? If you have to ask, the answer is probably, yeah. See, there's something within us, though, just tell us the line so, you know, I know how far I can go without stepping over the line. See, that's, that's Samson. He didn't want to step over the line, but he loves living on the line. He likes dancing on the line, just try not to go over the line. And I'm trying to tell you, that is the beginning. You are planting the seeds of sin. No, you haven't yet sinned. No, you're not let yet in a stronghold of sin. But when you dance on the border and you live life on the fringe, you're sowing the seeds of sin. And when you sow the seeds of sin, I guarantee it may take years, but they will come to fruition. I'm trying to tell you today, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Do you understand that with every single decision, every single sinful action, that little act of rebellion, you are building a link in your chain. You are building the chain of sin that one day Satan will use to lead you into captivity, to lead you into slavery. Every single sinful decision, one little bitty sin, is just one little link in the chain. And this is now Samson at this time in his life. He's just starting to build the very chain that Satan will lead him into captivity. He will lead him into slavery. It all begins when we live with this mentality. Well, I just want to stay on the line without going over the line. Like we think if we don't go deep into sin and we don't commit any really big sins, well, God doesn't really care. It doesn't really matter. I can handle it. You understand that stepping on the line, if you're playing basketball, it doesn't matter if you run up in the bleachers and bounce the ball in the bleachers or you just bounce the ball on the line you're still out of bounds. 
You understand? A church, I'm telling you this, I was raised in a time of, of legalism, church legalism. That was the generation kind of I was raised in, a denominational tradition. It was partly the generation. It, it was legalism. It was, um, it was draw a fence around the sin and then call it a sin to cross the fence. That makes sense? Like I was taught growing up in church, it's a sin to have a drink of alcohol for any reason ever, no matter what. And then I started dating a Lutheran. I could not believe it. You know, I'm a Baptist boy, and when we do communion, it's grape juice. I mean, to do it with alcoholic wine, that would be scandalous. So I started dating a Lutheran. Boy, did I get an education. I went to church with her for the first time, and they do communion every single week, and she went up to take communion. She came back with alcohol on her breath. Listen, there, there is no verse in the Bible I know of, and I've read the Bible more than once. There's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not have a glass of wine with your spaghetti. Thou shalt not have a beer with your hamburger. Uh, that, that was the generation I was raised in. Draw a fence around the sin, then call it a sin to cross the fence. But now the pendulum has swung from here, clear over here. We're living at a time now where it's all about liberty and flaunting one's liberty to the point where our liberty has become licensed. The problem is not the drink. The problem is the drinks. See, I'm trying to tell you, no one is born an alcoholic. No one is born hooked on alcohol. How does it happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It's one drink, one too many times, and that drink leads to another drink, and that drink leads to another drink, that drink leads to yet another drink, and you start reaching for the drink, and eventually the drink is reaching for you. And now it's a stronghold. You see, that's the nature of living on the border and playing on the fringe. Hey, you know, we wouldn't dream, gentlemen, of looking at pornography. I mean, that would be a big sin. But as I'm scrolling through my Instagram, man, I, I kind of anticipate the bikini videos. You know what I'm talking about. No, I'm not looking at pornography. I'm just getting a little flash of nudity, and it's gratifying to my flesh. Do you understand you're sowing the seed of sin. You think you, and that's just a baby sin. And I, no, I'm trying to tell you, you wouldn't dream of committing adultery. Nobody has ever gotten up in the morning and thought to themselves, today is the day. I'm going to commit adultery. I've never committed that sin. I've committed a lot of sins. never committed that sin. Today, that's on the list of sins I'm going to do. Nobody's ever thought about, today's the day. I'm going to blow up my family. I'm going to ruin my marriage. Yes, that's it. Nobody thinks that way. It just begins when we live on the border, we play on the fringe. That girl, she's kind of cute in the office. I'm not married to her. She's married to somebody else, but she likes to flirt. <laughs> Man, I like it when she flirts. Nobody's sinned yet. It's just kind of gratifying to the flesh. I'm just living on the border. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You know what that means? What that means is quit putting temptation and opportunity in the same intersection. So you can have opportunity but no temptation and you're not going to sin. You can have temptation and no opportunity and you're not going to sin. But when you keep putting temptation and opportunity in the same place at the same time, I will promise you eventually you will cave in to that temptation. You will not run in time. Quit kidding yourself. That is the deception that says, I can live on the line. Listen, if you're a single and you want to have a relationship of integrity sexually, and yes, guess what? It is still a sin when people sleep together and they're not married. I know, it's like, really? Yeah, God hadn't changed his mind. Now listen, if you're dating, you're single, and uh, you want a relationship that God can bless, and you really want a relationship of integrity, and you're trying to walk in integrity sexually, and you've had a wonderful date night, and you've gone out on the town, and it's late, and it's midnight, and you're dropping her off at her apartment, and you just want to come in for a cup of coffee. Shut up. Come on. I 
I'm trying to tell you, when you dance on the line, when you play on the fringe, when you put temptation and opportunity in the same place at the same time, you will eventually cave in. No, you're not yet in slavery. You're not yet in captivity. You're not yet in a stronghold biblically, but you are building the chain that one day Satan will use to lead you into captivity. You see, the first step of progression on the road to ruin and the road to destruction is when you live on the border. Number two, it's disobedience to God's command. You see, when you break one of God's command, it gets easier to break other commands. You have the Nazarite now. This man was born with power. This man was born with strength. This man was meant to lead others out of captivity into victory, and that is the same mission God has given you and I as those that have been liberated from slavery and captivity. We now have a mission of leading other slaves to liberty. I'm trying to tell you as a band of former slaves, this is our mission. This is why we exist, but every single day, Satan comes to take the free back into captivity. Begins number one, when you choose just to flirt with sin. But number two, when you begin breaking God's commands and you choose to sin, just little sin, little baby sins. I want you to think about this. He went down for the right reasons. He was spying out the enemy. But while he was there, he chose to stay a little too long and check out the chicks. And all of a sudden he begins to realize, wow. Woo! I mean, the girls don't look like this. The First Baptist Church of the Hebrews. <laughs> Mom, Dad, can we change churches? I like this youth group. The girls are smoking hot. I mean, it's a smoke show at Timnut. He comes back and announces, Mommy and Daddy, I am in love. I have found the girl I am going to marry. And you hear what she said? Now, wait a minute, honey. Mommy and Daddy said, oh, well, well, wait a minute, son. Is there not a daughter of your own people? Is there not a woman of the Hebrews for you to marry? See, here's the problem. God had said in the Levitical laws to the Jews, you are not to marry other people that worship other gods. It's very, very clear. There is a command specifically as they were going into the land, and they're going to be surrounded by pagan people worshiping counterfeit gods. I do not want the people of God worshiping other people that worship other gods because they will turn the heart of your sons to those pagan gods, and that's exactly what would happen, and that is why over and over again, century after century, the Hebrews would go into captivity because they would intermarry, and it would turn their heart away from the true and living God to other gods, and now you have this Nazarite that's supposed to be devoted completely, exclusively to God. He comes home and announces, I want to marry a Philistine. Yes, she's a pagan. I mean, yeah, she worships Dagon, the fish god, but hey, it's just, you know, we'll, we'll work it out later. He's missionary dating. It's what we used to call it when I was growing up. He's missionary dating. Now, I don't know yet if they're actually dating or if they're just having coffee. Yeah, I didn't know there was a difference, but there is. I've got young adults, and two of them are married, one of them's not yet, and I know lots of young adults. I hang out at Paradigm. Did you know there's a difference between going on a date and just going to coffee? I had no. I don't know if they're going on dates or just going to coffee, but he's really wanting to pursue a woman that God says, no, you cannot marry. He's breaking one of God's commands now, I want you to understand that when you break one of God's commands, it gets really easy to break other commands. See, breaking now repeated commands. Once you sin one time, it gets really easy to sin a second time. Once you've sinned a second time and broken that command, it gets easier then to break yet another command. Think about this. You click on pornography one time. You felt guilty. You knew it broke God's command. You knew that it wasn't holy. You knew that it compromised your integrity. You were doing it in secrecy. But once you click on it once, it's easier to do it again. And once you sin with your boyfriend once, it's easier to do it again. 
In other words, it's easy to keep breaking those commands, and, and, and eventually, what are you doing? You're building a chain link by link. It's getting longer, it's getting longer, it's getting longer. You have this Nazarite man now. He's going back to Timnath over and over again. He's a going court, and he's seeing his Philistine filly. And if you read the whole text, and we don't have time, it reads like a soap opera. I mean, really, you should read it. I mean, it's like a modern American Hollywood movie. It's got everything in it. It really, really does. He, he's going down to Timmons to see this Philistine filly. He's really in love. And it tells us at one moment, one time, one trip to town, this, this lion jumps out at him to attack him. But because he is a supernaturally empowered man, I mean, he's a really strong man, he tears this lion apart limb from limb. Now, that's okay. That's not a big deal. But then it says, after a few days of being in town, he's on his way back home. He goes by the carcass of that lion. He realizes, ooh, their bees have built a honeycomb in the carcass of the lion. He reaches down, scoops out some honey. What does he do? He breaks vow number one. Touch no dod body, no dead thing for any reason, any time. Strike one. And then we learn he finally goes down and he engages this woman, betroths her to be married, and he's going to marry this woman, and he has a feast of wine. It's a seven-day feast. He's kicking it now with his Philistine friends. Now, what's he doing befriending the Philistines? He's supposed to be at war with the Philistines, but now he has befriended the Philistines. See, now he's entered into a peaceful coalition with the enemy. He's befriended the Philistines, and they have a seven-day feast by cultural, historical uh, practice of the day, seven-day feast leading up to the wedding. Scholars tell us it was a feast of wine. Now, I'm not naive. If you read the text, it doesn't say it specifically, but it is a feast of wine. It doesn't tell us specifically that he was drinking that wine, but I have a feeling he is not buying booze for his Philistine buddies without partaking. Really? Probably not. Strike two. Drink no wine, no fruit of the vine. See, what's he doing now? He's, he, he's breaking repeated commands. It's becoming a way of life. And I'm trying to tell you, this is the pattern in many of our lives. A repeated sin becomes a habit. A sinful habit becomes a pattern. A sinful pattern becomes a stronghold. And that's the biblical term, a stronghold. What happens? You sin just one time. You give Satan a little toehold. You sin again and again. That toehold becomes a foothold. You sin again and again and again. And that foothold becomes a handhold. You sin again and again. And that handhold is now become a stronghold, and now you've given a sovereign right and sovereign control to the enemy. I'm talking about Satan, the enemy of your soul, and a stronghold is now an heir of your life that he has complete control. And you look in the life of Samson, church, I'm trying to tell you, this is a man that is developing a sexual addiction. He's developing a sexual addiction. This is a man that is no longer thinking about God's glorification. It's all about his self-gratification. It would become a pattern again and again and again and again. You see, when you stay on the border and just dance on the fringe and then you break one sin, it leads to repeatedly breaking sins. It becomes a habit and that habit doesn't stay a habit. It becomes a pattern and that pattern then becomes a stronghold. Number four is this. It leads now to a disinterest altogether in God's cause and interested now only in your cause. See, this is a man that was born to live for the cause of God. He'd been given a mission, and that mission was to shine like the sun. He was given supernatural strength so that he could lead his people to victory and freedom and liberty in the face of Philistine tyranny and captivity. But he's no longer living on a mission of God. He's now living only for his own cause. In the entire four chapters of his biography, there are only two times he prays that's recorded. One time he prays, after kicking, uh, after, I was about to say, <laughs> kicking some Philistine ASS <laughs> with the jawbone of an ass. I'm not cussing, that's King James Version, okay? He takes the jawbone of an ass and kicks a thousand guys ASS, all right? 
and he's exhausted. And he's about to die of thirst, or at least he thinks he is. And he prays, God, this is his prayer. God, have you, have you delivered me from a thousand men to kill me with thirst? You whiny pants. That's his first prayer, only recorded prayer. Second prayer, only recorded prayer. He's now in captivity. He's in slavery. His life ends blinded, broken, and in bondage. He prays one last time, God, give me strength just one more time that I may avenge my eyes. See, it was never about giving God glory. It was never about God's name. It was never about God's fame. It's always about his own vengeance on the Philistines. It's no longer leading war against this wicked, evil people for God's glory and the freedom and liberty of God's people. He enters in now to what amounts to a petty little feud. What happens is he marries this girl and uh, he loses a bet in the process. They're kicking it at the bachelor party and he gives these 30 Philistine men a riddle and makes a bet with them and he loses the bet. And so in a fit of rage, to pay off the bet, he goes and kills 30 Philistine men. And then the response, the Philistines burn his wife to death. And in response to them burning his wife to death, he goes out and kills some Philistine men And then in response to killing those Philistine men, they take vengeance on him, so he catches 300 fox, ties their tails together, puts a torch between the tail of each fox, send those fox through the grain fields of the Philistines, he burns down their their grain fields, I mean the feud is on, not for God's glory, oh no, for his own gratification, his own vengeance. This is the life of Samson. This goes on now for 20 years. He's no longer interested in God's cause. He's forgotten all about his conception and his consecration and his mission. He's living now only for self-gratification, for his name, for his fame. Disinterested in God's cause, interested only in your cause. This is the point where the Apostle Paul talks about having lost your moral conscience, having had your conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, you've sinned so many times again and again and again and again, you have lost your ability to feel what God meant for you to feel, which is the conviction of sin. See, initially you feel guilty. You feel the guilt of sin, the conviction of sin. But the more you sin, what happens? You lose feeling. God gave you a moral conscience for a reason so that conscience would convict you when you sin. But when you sin, the apostle Paul said, it's like searing your conscience with a hot iron. I I told a story a few weeks ago of how I got burned really bad at 16 years of age. I still have a spot on on my calf that has no feeling. I burn the nerve endings in my legs so bad that all these years later I still can't feel a thing. Do you understand that's exactly what sin does to the mind, the will, the emotions? It says in Proverbs 6.32 that whoever commits adultery destroys his own soul. Not your spirit, if you've been born again. Soul, what is the soul? It's the mind, the will, the emotions. I don't know how many times I've been in conversation in pastoral care and counseling over 22 years of ministry. A man is caught in the snare of pornography or sexual addiction, promiscuity, that merry-go-round of sensuality, and he looks at me and says, Pastor Phil, I don't feel a thing. You don't feel a thing because the sin has destroyed your soul. Your ability to feel, your soul is the emotions. Your soul is that part of you that can feel pain, that can feel what God wants you to feel when you sin. And the sin has singed the conscience that God gave you. You're disinterested now altogether in the cause of God. Now you're only living for the cause of self. You've entered into a time of self-idolatry, self-worship, and that is the essence of a stronghold. It's self-worship and self-idolatry, and this has become now the life of Samson. He is a complete addict. He is out of control. He's giving himself to prostitution. 
Not just physically, but spiritually. And that is the real problem in all of our lives. Listen, Samson went into one prostitute after another, after another, but that is a picture of what happens to you and I when we choose to sin again and again and again. James 4 and verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You'd better get on the right side of the line. Because you're about to cross a line and you can never get back. There's a point of no return. And Samson is dangerously close to a point of no return in his life. We sing songs sometimes, and, 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 and sometimes we don't quite have the right theology when you study Scripture. Well, no one is ever out of God's reach. The love of God is always able to, no, wait a minute, read Romans chapter one. Three times Romans chapter one says this, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them up. See, there's a warning. There's a warning and a wooing. God is trying to tell you there's a point where you cross the line, God gives you up and says, okay, have it your way. And when you choose to sin over and over and over again and you quench the wooing of the Holy Spirit and your conscience is now seared before God and you no longer have the conviction of God when you sin, you are dangerously close to crossing a line to which there is no return. And Samson is crossing a line and very soon there's gonna be no return. He is living a life of self-worship, self-idolatry, self-gratification instead of living for God's glorification. And I'm trying to tell you, church, listen carefully. There is always a payment when you sin. There's that initial payoff. But there's a payday someday. See, that's the nature of sin. There's the instant gratification or we wouldn't do it. That immediate gratification, the immediate payoff. But God's trying to tell you the payoff is not worth the payday. And there's always a payday. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And he that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit will reap life everlasting. You see, there's a payday someday. When you sow the seeds of sin, you will reap the fruition of sin and its ruin. But when you sow the seeds of obedience and righteousness, you will reap life abundantly and life everlasting you choose the change you're going to wear in life. You make it link by link with every decision. You are defining your destination. And poor Samson, he's defining a destination that's going to lead to complete devastation. He's now forgotten all about his conception. He's forgotten about his consecration. All he's living now is for self-gratification. Judges 14, 13 became the mantra, the embodiment of her life. Get her for me, for she pleases me well. And that's how a lot of people today are living. Yes, I know what God says about sexuality. But it pleases me. I know what God says about sleeping around, but it pleases me. I know what God says about gay and lesbian relationships, but it pleases me. I know what God says about drunkenness, but it pleases me. I know what God says, but it pleases me. Do you understand? You are going for the reward of now, forgetting about the payment that comes later. It will not be worth it. I will promise you, if you don't get back on the right side of the line, there may be no coming back. And tonight, I'm begging you, if God is revealing right now an area of your life that you're sowing the seeds of sin, tonight is the night to put down the chains of sin and put on the chains of Christ. Samson is about to be led into bondage and led into captivity, now de complete disregard for God's counsel. You read the text all along the way, his mom and dad are going, Samson, 
Samson, really, Samson, really, is there no woman among your people for which you to marry Samson? This woman isn't good for you. Samson, this isn't a good idea. But he would disregard over and over again godly counsel, wise counsel. Tonight, what will you do? Will you disregard the counsel of the living God? Will you disregard the counsel of the word of God? See, we live in a society going deeper and deeper into captivity because we have believed the lies of the enemy. Jesus said Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And when you believe the lies of the enemy, it will always lead to captivity. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Don't be deceived. We live in a society that's thrown off the outdated, antiquated moral values of Christianity and the Bible Yet the social science says we're not becoming free. We are a society going deeper and deeper into captivity, soaring numbers of STDs, soaring numbers of suicides among America's teens, soaring numbers of broken hearts, soaring numbers of broken homes. We're the most addicted generation in the history of our nation. We're the most depressed generation in the history of our nation. We're statistically the loneliest generation in the history of our nation. When will we come to terms with the fact that we have believed lies, the lies of the enemy, instead of believing the truth of God's word that will set us free and keep us free. But Samson has disregarded all godly counsel. And that leads to the sixth step and the last step, disbelief in God's discipline. He no longer thinks that God will judge his sin. He's been doing it for so long. It's as though God isn't there. God doesn't care. He no longer takes God's word seriously. He's Mr. Big Britches. By the time it opens up in Judges chapter 16, he goes into a house of prostitution. He's given himself completely to a sexual addiction. You better believe the APB is out on him. The Philistines have surrounded this town, surrounded this city. They finally think they got him. But it tells us in the narrative, he wakes up And he knows that they are there, and he knows he's too strong for them. He's not really threatened by them. It tells us he takes the gates of that city. In the ancient days, these cities had walls, and these cities had gates. Imagine a man this strong. He literally picks up the gate of that city, crossbeam and all, puts it on his back, carries it 15 miles, sets it down, tears down the goalposts, I'm a bad, bad man. Come and get me. Oh, yeah, he's feeling it now. He thinks he's invincible. You see, you think when God doesn't bring down the gavel the first time you sin, you've gotten away with it. No, you haven't gotten away with it. You know why God doesn't bring the gavel the first time we sin? is because 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, he is long-suffering toward us. He is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He loves you unconditionally. His love for you is from infinity. But do you understand, eventually, when you reject the grace of God, all that's left is the judgment of God. The gavel is is about to come down on Samson's life. He thinks he's gotten away with his sin for so long, even God can't touch him. Proverbs eleven nineteen: as righteousness leads to life, So he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Will you listen to the counsel of God tonight? God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. But do you understand, it's a universal truth. There's no one that gets an exception. Nobody's the exemption. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23, sin is death to relationships. It brings death to friendships. It brings death to finances. It brings death to your family. It will bring death to your marriage. It will bring death to you personally. I'm talking about the destruction and devastation of sin. And it may take 20 years. It took 20 years for Samson to finally self-destruct. 
Do you understand at this very moment we have an enemy whose name is Satan and the apostle Peter called him a lion. First Peter five and verse eight, be sober, be vigilant for the adversary, the devil goeth about as a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Do you understand when a lion hunts, he might take hours and hours stalking his prey. Satan's got all the time on his side. He does not care how long it takes. Two days, two weeks, two months, 20 years to take you out. He's very patient. Took 20 years to finally take Samson out. But day by day, link by link, decision by decision, Samson was slowly building the chain of sin that would one day lead him away into a Philistine prison, his own destruction. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Sometimes we look at this world where it feels like righteousness is retreating and wickedness is winning, and we know people who are far from the will of God living deep and deep in sin and rebellion against God, and it looks like their life is being blessed, and we wonder why sometimes as Christians trying to pursue a life that is holy and live with integrity, God, does it feel like, you know, my life stinks, and their life is awesome. It doesn't feel like this is fair. No, you just haven't seen the end yet. There will be an end. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. There's a payday someday even if it's not today. Now you have Samson, he is completely out of control. Chapter 16, he's made prostitution a way of life. He's completely in a prison of sexual addiction. He goes in to see a prostitute by the name of Delilah. And there is a reason why no little baby girls in this church is being named Delilah. <laughs> the famous Delilah. The prostitute, Delilah, he is so drunk with himself, he is now intoxicated with his sin. He's intoxicated with his addiction. But he loves Delilah. And here's what's amazing about this part of the story. Delilah three times beckons him to tell me the source of your strength. She's been hired by the Philistines for 1,100 pieces of silver to find out the secret of Samson's strength. Three times she beckons him. Samson, honey, I love you. Big, strong hunk of Hebrew. Three times she gets him drunk, he falls asleep. He's not only a sex addict, he's an alcoholic. I'll tell you how I know he's an alcoholic. This, this brother sleeps deepest and soundest of anybody I know. Just read the text. Man, I don't know how this guy sleeps through this stuff. He's passed out, that's how. Three times she beckons him, tell me the source of your strength. You say you love me. If you really do love me, You'll tell me, won't you? Well, three times he lies. Three times he lies. She lies. He's asleep. He gets bound. The Philistines jump him. She says, wake up, Samson. The Philistines are upon you. And he shakes them off because he's got supernatural strength. Now, on the third time, no, I'd say the second time, no, gee, the first time, he ought to figure it out. Wait a minute. Maybe Delilah doesn't love me. Are you kidding? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times? This happens three times. The fourth time, a lot of you know the story. If you don't, you ought to read it. This thing reads like a movie. Fourth time, he finally relents. He finally shares the secret. No razor has ever come to my head. And if my hair is ever shaved, I will lose my strength and I will become like any man. Three strikes and you're out. The third of the Nazarite vows. This is exactly what happens. He falls asleep, passed out in her lap. The Philistines come, shave his head. 
He wakes up and he thinks he's going to shake him off just like before and does not even know that he has lost his strength. He does not even know that the Lord has departed from him. It took 20 years for Samson to fully and finally self-destruct. It takes 20 years for Samson, one step after another, after another, after another, to leave the place of victory and go into captivity. It took one step after another, one decision, day by day, day by day, but eventually he was on a road that would lead to his destruction, one step in progression that would lead ultimately to a Philistine prison. Then she lulled him to sleep, Judges 6, 19, on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him, and that is always the nature of sin. She lulls him to sleep. He's now literally sleeping with the enemy. Sleeping with sin. Lulled to sleep. You understand Satan would love just to lull you to sleep. Sing you a lullaby. He shares the secret of his strength. Philistines come in and shave his head and said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and they bound him with a bronze fetter, and he became a grinder in the prison. Imagine what this must have been like for Samson, scholars tell us the Philistines had three ways of putting out a man's eyes, and they liked blinding a man's eyes, and then they would use him for entertainment. That was the plan they had for Samson. Three ways they would have blinded him. One would have been with something like a metal spoon. They would put it into his eyes and pop the eyes out of the socket. The second way was with a sharp stick. They would have drilled it into his eyeballs and drained the fluid out of the eye. The third way would have been a red-hot poker. They would have taken a red-hot poker, put it on his eyes, and singed his eyeballs until he was blind. Can you imagine Samson in this moment? He thinks he's going to throw them off like before, but he does not know the Lord has departed from him. He's now blind. He's broken. He's in bondage. He is completely wrapped up in a Philistine prison. He's now in Philistine chains, and he is now doing the work of an animal, the work of a mule. He's in a grinding house, and day by day, week by week, he's walking in circles. He's now a slave. He's now a slave to the enemy, a slave to the Philistines. Can you imagine day by day what he must have been thinking? My name is Samson. My name is little sun. I was supposed to shine like the sun, but now I'm in darkness. My name is Samson. I was a strong man, but now I'm in a stronghold. I'm doing the work of an animal. I'm a slave when I should have been free, but now I'm in captivity, and I'm trying to tell you, this is your future if you choose to rebel against the Lord your God. But today is the day for freedom, because Jesus has the power to set you free. He has the power to set you free, to break every chain. You see, there's one greater than Samson. God made Samson of a special conception and a unique consecration to lead his people to freedom when they were in bondage to the enemy. But there is one greater than Samson whose name is Jesus. No, not a Nazarite, but Jesus the Nazarene, who in fact had a special conception, a miraculous conception, born of a virgin. And because of that conception, he had a very, very special consecration. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He was wholly devoted to the will of the Father. You see, at a special consecration, with that special conception, he was called to the cross and it would be on the cross he would bear the chains of our sin he would be led away as a criminal he would spend three days in a prison but three days later he would rise again and he would break the chains of sin for all men and all women you were made to be free you were made for liberty he said I've come to give you life abundantly and today today 
if you will put on the chains of Christ, he will set you free. You see, there's the paradox of Christianity. Jesus is not a cruel taskmaster. Satan is a cruel taskmaster. Sin is a cruel taskmaster. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest to your soul. You choose your chains. You put on the chains of Christ. He sets you free. But when you wear the chains of sin, it will always be a life of captivity. You choose. Tonight is the night to choose. I don't know what chains you walked in with but you can leave here wearing a whole different set of chains. Jesus, I pray for every person here, God in heaven. That every person here would know the love of God their Father and the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That not one person this weekend would settle for mediocrity, apathy, captivity when you came to give us life abundantly and somebody tonight would say Phil there's an area of my life that I know has kept me from living the abundant life in Christ there's an area of my life that I know the enemy has used over and over again to take me again back into a prison Tonight, I so desperately want to be free. I'm telling you, this church is not a place of shame. There's no condemnation. Jesus is a man of compassion. He's here to set you free. Now, he's made his move, and now he's waiting on you to make yours. If that's you tonight, we just raise your hand right now. There's an area in my life, Pastor Phil, that I have never, ever had real victory consistently. Begins with a raised hand to heaven. Raised hand says, inside of me, there's an honest heart. I'm done hiding. I want the healing. God in heaven, you see these hands. And tonight we believe that you are who you say you are, that you will do what you said you will do, that you have the power to break every chain, that you have the power to set men and women free. Tonight we are petitioning you as your people to set your people free. Forgiveness brings freedom. If your hand is in the air, I petition you right now to stand up, walk down here, meet me right here. Let's get on our knees together. We're going to repent of our sin. We're going to renounce Satan's right to rule. We're going to put on a different set of chains. And we're going to walk out of here free. Come quickly, dear church, come quickly. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.